Hello then and welcome to the Classic Rock Podcast. And coming up then in this month's show, we're going to be digging deep into the rock music archives. Jimmy Page is going to be talking about the greatest riff of all time. It was, of course, all lot of love. Now, Robert Plant, back in 1972, was part of this cultural exchange trip as Led Zeppelin headed off to Iceland. And we'll hear about uh, how they got on while they were over there. And also, there was a few people stateside that were getting a little bit hot under the collar about the money, corruption, and general levels of debauchery in the rock world. And uh, a journalist was sent off on a trip to investigate. And this lucky journo got a trip on board the famous Zeppelin plane. She was never the same again. Joe Elliott debuts the Down and Out's fabulous new album, This Is How We Roll. We'll hear from him and we'll have a great track of that album. Plus, what was the greatest Iron Maiden song of all time? Guitar World did a poll. They ran the top 50 Iron Maiden songs and we'll play the number one. But uh, I guess you probably know what it is already, really, don't you? And don't forget as well, we will have the usual roundup of what is making the music press over the last month. There's a lot of Queen out there at the moment, but um, plenty of other things as well. That's coming up later on in the show. But first, this. Well, this year has already delivered us, I think you'll agree, some great new works from some of our favourite artists, but maybe the best of it is coming later in the year. Contender for Album of the Year has got to be, wait for it, Joe Elliott's Down and Outs, who have just released This Is How We Roll, which is right up there with some of the best stuff that he's ever done. Now, this is more than just a homage to his love in particular of Mott the Hooper, which, of course, is well known. Now, this is a collection of songs with a real uh, 70s vibe and DNA running right the way through it. And if you listen closely, you can hear hints of everybody from the Beatles to Roxy Music and T-Rex. And the other great thing about this collection is that all of them, bar this rollicking version of the tubes, white punks on dope, they're all original songs and the quality of the songwriting will perhaps be a reminder to some of just how good a songwriter Joe Elliott actually is. Now, this has actually been a real labour of love for all of those involved in putting this album together. So how long has it actually taken Joe Elliott and the boys to actually get this ready for release? At least five years in the making. In fact, it's, you could argue that it goes back even further than that because the nature of what the Down and Outs is, it's a side project, which means it can only be approached and, and what have you, when you aren't busy with the mothership, as I like to call it. And there are three motherships, the Choir Boys being one, Vixen being one, and Def Leppard being, obviously for me, the main one. Um, so we can only kind of poke and prod at it every now and again when everybody's off. Very fortunately, I wrote all the songs, save for one cover. Um, so when I had them in kind of beaten into shape, I sent the demos off to everybody and they were all more than happy to just do them as they were, so there was no arguing about arrangements or stuff like that, so it was kind of easy to do. So when, whenever I got home and a couple of them were free, I'd fly them into my studio and they would do their parts and then they'd go back to their job, as it were, you know. As it happens, Phil the drummer recorded the drums in London, Cher Ross recorded the bass parts in a house in Florida and all the vocals, so with the beauty of the internet and technology, we managed to glue this whole thing together over a long period of time, but the vision for the songs has always been there since about before the last Down and Outs album came out, which was 2014, I had at least half of these songs written. Time then to listen to a track. Now, it's not been easy to actually pick one out because there's so many good tracks on here, but Creatures was one of the first standouts for me. Uh, so over to Joe to tell you what it's all about. The song Creatures is probably the most bubbly thing on the album. I was a big fan of the Bowie, Queen, vaudeville type stuff. You know, Queen would have songs like Lazing on a Sunday Afternoon or, uh, you know, uh, Bring Back Leroy Brown. 
And Bowie used to do it a little bit. I mean, apart from the laughing gnome period of his career, he also had this great song which was recorded during the Ziggy sessions but ultimately left off the album called Velvet Goldmine. But it has this very kind of umpar chorus. And I wanted to do something that really separated me from the Def Leppard songwriting. And it's a real simplistic two chord, very kind of funfair piano part. And lyrically, it's just completely mad. It makes no sense, um, but at the same time it does. So you, to understand what I've just said, you really need to hear it. But um, I think what sums the whole thing up is that in, when I was piecing it together, I had this great melody, or I thought was a great melody for the, where the guitar solo would go. And instead of grabbing a guitar, I just whistled it, just so I wouldn't forget what it was. And then I said to Ronan, who was the producer, let's double track it just so it sounds better. And we kept doing it. And it's very difficult to whistle when you're laughing. And I was laughing, it's that kind of song. It's kind of comical. And we did this whistling solo just as a marker, but the longer we lived with the song, the longer it's like, that's not going anywhere. So we left it in, you know. So Paul gets to do a great ride-out solo, but there's this huge big whistling solo thing in the middle, which is just very British. And the whole song is very British vaudeville. It's almost like it sounds like it's been recorded now, it, it sounds like it could have been written in 1972, but it sounds like it was influenced by 1940s. It's a very bizarre song, and I think it's probably my favorite because of the reaction it gets when I play it to people. They just look at me going, where did you get that from? Because it's so very different to anything I've ever written. And so here it is. It almost needs a fairground introduction, but you'll see what he means about this could have been released in 1972 and that feel of... A very early Queen and the vaudeville stuff. And it could also easily have been done by uh, somebody like the Davis Brothers and the Kinks on the Village Green Preservation Society. Anyway, here it is. Have a listen. You'll like it. Human games. All hail to the 
There it is, then told you it was different, and it's perhaps the year's most unexpected listening pleasure. Joe Elliott and the Down and Outs. This is how we roll. It is out everywhere now. Now, since we were last with you, the band revered by many as the greatest rock and roll band of all time, Led Zeppelin, celebrated the 50th anniversary of the release of their second album, an album that included this. recorded at the Olympic Studios, and it was said that they got the booming sound due to the big room, as it was called back then, which had uh, 28-foot-high ceilings. And uh, they set the drums up on a platform, and they, quote, put mics in unusual places. When it got its release in the USA as a single, it was actually cut down to 5 minutes and 33, which was excessive even then. And it went on to uh, be a big hit for them over there. But over in the UK, an even shorter version was put up for release by Atlantic. Now, they cut it down to 3 minutes and 12 seconds. Now, Jimmy Page actually heard it and was so repulsed uh, that it was never actually released. But ironically, in 1997, it did get a release as a single, uh, the only single that Led Zeppelin ever released in the UK, and it was to do with the celebration of the band's 30th anniversary. But despite all the hoo-ha, it never actually got inside the top 20. It has, though, over the years been given the accolade on many, many occasions as being the greatest guitar riff of all time. Many polls down the years and the decades, including a recent one done by the BBC. And he was asked on being given this greatest guitar riff of all time award, how he felt. Well, as I say, it's, you know, it's, uh, I'm not out by this because uh, I didn't really expect that to happen. You know, there's been so many wonderful riffs along the way. I had the, I, I had the, the riff and, uh, uh, and the sort of framework of, uh, of the song that became a lot of love. Yeah, I wanted a riff that really moved, you know, that people would really get. And, uh, and it would bring a smile to their faces, you know. But when I played it with the band, I mean, it just really went into overdrive, and uh, that's how it went. And what guitar was he using during the making of? Well, um, I must say that, you know, I, I used the Gibson Les Paul on that. It, it, it was relatively recently acquired for me. I'd only had it for a few, a few months. But it was such a user-friendly guitar, and it sounded so huge anyway. And... Um, the amps that I had, you know, they're all vintage stuff, obviously, but even vintage at the time. Yeah, I just sort of, well, I knew where I was going with it, you know, to be honest. And what were his thoughts when the riff was picked up and used on two separate occasions as a theme tune to Top of the Pops? Well, it was interesting. It was interesting that it, it was taken on, you know, that, that even at that stage it was thought of in its in, instrumental capacity. Led Zeppelin starts in uh, 1968, but we're talking now of recording in 1969, and, you know, we were touring in America and coming back and, and playing the number, and uh, thinking, well, people are just going to think it's a theme tune at top of the pops. Yeah, not really. <laughs> and finally, did he think that he would ever 
grow tired of playing whole lot of love. Oh, I do hope not. Where he doesn't tire of playing it, we certainly will never ever tire of listening to it. Give you my-
whole lot of love, of course. Opening track of Led Zepp 2, which celebrated its 50th anniversary very recently. Uh, there's a deluxe edition of this, which was released in the last, what, 18 months? Uh, very much worth exploring. It was the first album, remember, to go to number one in the US and the UK. Sold over 12 million copies in the USA alone, 12 times platinum over there, four times platinum in the UK, nine times platinum in Canada. And if you look at the bowls of the greatest albums ever on whatever list you're looking at, it will occupy a position in that list. Now, back in 1970, Led Zeppelin caused a bit of a stir as they headed off on a cultural exchange trip to Iceland. And of course, uh, this led to all sorts of criticism being leveled at the band. I mean, cultural exchange. Coming to the land of the ice and snow from the midnight sun where the hot springs blow. Uh, wasn't it all being just a, a little bit pompous? Not in the slightest, said Robert Plant. It was always like that with Led Zeppelin. Who do they think they are to be so pompous? And we weren't being pompous. We did come from the land of the ice and snow. We were guests of the Icelandic government. We were on a cultural mission representing the musicians of Britain. And we were invited to Reykjavik to play a concert. And the day before we arrived, all the um, civil servants went on strike, the blue-collar workers and the gig was going to be cancelled, so the university went out and took two unofficial days off and prepared the concert hall, prepared the whole environment for us to play. And it was most phenomenal. The kind of uh, response and the confederacy between us and the kids, the people, our own age, you know, in a little country of 200,000 people. We had the most remarkable time, and it was, we went in the summer, there was no night time, and even a mug from the black country can say, the hammer of the gods will drive our ships to new lands, because there we were, we got off a plane, and, and we were given Iceland on a plate. Everybody did as best as they could to cement Anglo-Icelandic relationships, and letters and... Uh, Paternity suits were filed for our years to come, but I mean, it was a great, great time. And we had, we, if anybody could ever win a trip anywhere, it would have been to have been with Led Zeppelin in Iceland. And so the whole Led Zeppelin thing was let's have a good time and let's not put anybody out, despite what people may read, but let's just have a great time. An immigrant song really was the first sort of following a whole lot of love, it was the, the opening track of an album which was intended to be incredibly different. What is your first impression of Iceland? Well, it's extremely friendly. The reception we've had has been incredible. And uh, I think we're going to have a good time. Uh, are you looking forward to the performance tomorrow night? Very much so. We haven't played for um, about a month since we came back from America. And uh, it's very strange to play this far north. And, of course, I've never been here before, and it's all rather exciting, so I really hope that with the impression we got at the airport and the young people that we have a really good time and the audience really enjoys themselves. I'd like them to really get loose and jump about and scream and shout and listen and really get their money's worth. How long will your performance be? Well, it all depends. It could be two hours, it could be three hours. It just depends on the, the mood that we're in and the mood that the audience is in. Are you introducing any new numbers? We may do. We don't really know until we start. Thank you very much. And of course, regardless of all the usual criticisms, the event was a rip-roaring success. Now, it was a little bit further down the line that all of the excesses of the time started to make the real news. It wasn't all, of course, just led Zeppelin, but uh, it was Zeppelin-led as they traversed the states in their own aeroplane, which of course included two bedrooms, a fireplace, and plenty of sing-alongs in the bar with the piano, and it did become the stuff of legend as we know. Now, one of the TV networks over in the US, NBC, uh, decided that they were going to pick up on this phenomenon, as they called it, and decided it's time to get our ace reporter on the case, and so they did. 
Her name was Betty Rollin. She's still around today, a very highly respected journalist as well. Uh, And she actually got a ride in the plane with the band. Here is how they reported the music industry back in 1972. The Los Angeles Times reported today that a federal grand jury in California will soon investigate the multi-million dollar record business. The story was promptly denied by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, but many people in the business have been called before a federal grand jury in Newark, New Jersey. They were asked about drug dealing, payola, mob connections, and high living at company expense. Here's a report from Betty Rollin on rich rock stars and the industry that shares their wealth. The Shah of Iran? No. J. Paul Getty? No. The occupants of these limousines don't rule countries, don't make oil deals, they don't even make million dollar movies, but they live as if they did all of those things. In their 20s, they are rich, powerful, temperamental, and pampered. They are the Led Zeppelin, a rock group on tour. And in the vernacular of the record biz, where to be merely big is nothing, the Zeppelin is very big. To get around, the Zeppelin uses a chartered 707, the kind of plane President Nixon uses. The president's plane doesn't have an organ, nor a 15-foot mirrored bar, nor in the private quarters does it have two bedrooms and a fireplace. Nor does the president travel with an entourage that looks like this. The boys in the Zeppelin have been flying high for a few years now, and they feel their lifestyle is only befitting their station. I'm a bit upset that there's not a pool table on board. Apart from that, I think this is about the best way to travel. The latest estimate is that at least 50 rock superstars earn more than $2 million a year. But it isn't only the performers who are making all of that money. The people around them are cashing in too. People like agents and managers, and sometimes people like mobsters and pushers. At the heart of the current scandal are reputed mafia hoods who have been after a piece of the rock action through drug dealing, protection rackets, and payola. Of course, no one has profited more from the rock phenomenon than the $2 billion a year recording industry. Scandal or not, the rock recording industry rolls on, and the stakes are high. Of 7,500 new releases a year, only 150 will be hit. So when company heads think they might have a hit, they sort of go crazy. Freak rock is big this year, so when David Bowie came along, a flaming red-haired self-proclaimed bisexual, RCA put up $100,000 for promotion and publicity to make the chance of a Bowie hit less chancy. This money, more or less, is, is spent in the direction of radio advertisements, in, in-store display units, pictures of David Bowie in-store, more or less, to, to, so the consumer can see the product that is available. Underground news media, newsprint, and several underground papers, which more or less pinpoints the markets in which we're supposed to, we're trying to take David. promotion, all the effort, all the money, all the shadiness, all the payola, is to attract the attention of kids like this. A whole industry turns on the fancy and on predicting the fancy of American kids with cash. And in going after that cash, some of America's most successful corporations have lunged, tripped, and fallen, and now face the prospect of criminal prosecution. Betty Rollin, NBC News. Fabulous snapshot of the time, really, wasn't it? Didn't you love the way that the American journalists always used to put a the in in front of everything? They used to call it the Pink Floyd, the Led Zeppelin. And hands up those of you that actually know what the term payola means. Payola. It was the word that was used 
to describe the act or acts of a record label or other interested parties at the time, actually paying a radio station to play a certain artist either with goods or cash or anything else. Uh, The practice, as they say, had obvious implications when money changes hands in exchange for radio play. Certain artists get more exposure than the others. Of course, none of that sort of thing ever goes on anymore, does it? Now, it's time to go around the world in 10 interesting news stories from the last month. And we begin with the story of the month. For me, that is anyway. Uh, The Tool fan, who was attending the show at the Staples Center in Los Angeles, who wanted somebody to take a photograph of him with the stage in the background, which you do. Uh, So he ambled up to a guy that was sat down and asked him. No problem, he said. All done. Only thing was that he didn't recognize the guy that he asked who happened to be Eddie Van Halen, who was there with his son Wolfgang, who happened to catch the event on his camera, and he shared it to the world at large later that evening. Brilliant. Must be something about Van Halen now, as there was the incident a few months back. Again, you might remember this, David Lee Roth, a couple of months ago, emerging from his hotel room in... Las Vegas. He hears Van Halen music blaring from across the hall. Uh, So he went and knocked on the door and the guy that answered it thought he was coming to complain about the music. So he apologized. Uh, He said he'd turn it down and shut the door and went back to the party. Can you imagine how much that must have hurt? David Lee Roth. Now, this is a good one. Bon Scott fans have got something to look forward to on March 1st next year. A 10k section of the Canning Highway Road, this is in Perth, Australia, will be closed for 10 hours for an event called Highway to Hell. All sorts of tribute acts and the Perth Symphony Orchestra will play versions of ACDC tracks on the back of a convoy of flatbed trucks. Uh, And that is amongst all sorts of other events. What a great idea. Now, how many other cities actually could do the same? Uh, lots of road songs, aren't there? Yellow Big Road, Road to Hell, uh, Road to Nowhere, Gypsy Road, Thunder Road, Copperhead Road, Tobacco Road, uh, Back on the Road. I think you can get where we're going with that. Now, just about to be released is a documentary on just about the most famous ever rock and roll bar that ever served a Jack Daniels. Uh, The list of who frequented it down the years is simply so long you couldn't possibly go through it. So we basically say that everybody that was ever anybody hung out there. Where is it? What is it? Well, how about we get its most famous resident to actually give you an introduction? I've seen a few things in this place you would not believe. And I've done a few things in there too. The history of rock and roll is in here. It was like a party every night. It was crazy. It was absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like that. I used to get away with murder in America. I said, do what the f*** you want. I don't care. It was Bacchanalia. It was exactly how you picture it. Times 10. It was the place to be. You'd see everybody here. Slash, Ozzy, Lemmy, John Bonham, Molly Cruz, Cruz Moon, Van Halen, Jimmy Page, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. The list goes on and on and on. It was different then. There was a culture, the likes of which will not happen again. And the watering hole of all of it. The one great hub. The only rock mecca. The church of rock and roll. The rainbow. The documentary, The Rainbow, it is out on iTunes, available to rent or buy. Now, if you think you're, uh, I don't know, popular, bit of a player on social media, bit of an influencer. This might make you weep at just how insignificant you really, really are. Guns N' Roses made history. Remember last year, November rain passed a billion views on YouTube, that is. Now, Sweet Child of Mine has actually passed the one billion as well this year in the last few weeks. And in 2019, Guns N' Roses have accrued, this is in 2019 so far, 
895 million YouTube views. Now that equates to about 3.1 million a day. It's quite staggering really, isn't it? Reunions. We love a reunion, especially one that might see the return of the Black Crows. Now, next summer, it'll be the 30th anniversary of their fantastic debut album, Shake Your Moneymaker. And one of the ex-managers has allegedly let it slip that the brothers Robinson have a deal done with Live Nation. All we have to do is hope that uh, it includes a few European dates. And it's been a very, very good couple of months as well for Iron Maiden and doing his bit for international relations and, of course, keeping the British end up is none other than Bruce Dickinson. They received the uh, Visitors of Honour accolade from Argentina's National Congress last week after their stop-off in Buenos Aires to play a gig at the Jose Amaltifali Stadium home to Velez Sarsfield and indeed to the Pumas, the Argentinian rugby team. Bruce uh, made his speech. He said, we love your music. We love Argentina. We love your food. We love your soccer players, except perhaps maybe one of them. And we love your rugby team. He said, I'm a big fan of the Pumas. There is much, he continued, that connects us. And that is more important than what separates us. And he added that they hope to come back and play maybe River Plate next time. If you go online to YouTube, you'll see some of the filmed footage of from fans on this recent South American jaunt from Rio through to Chile and Argentina. That stop we've just been talking about. Uh, Bruce's voice sounds in amazing condition. I have to say, some of the performances were absolutely stunning. And you'll see some truly incredible fan reaction. Now, just sticking with the Iron Maiden for a minute, they are topping the pile in terms of revenue earned from live shows after the last month as well. They've raked in 13 million plus from 10 days ahead of Aerosmith, who pulled in six and a half from their residency in Vegas. And they, this is Aerosmith, actually passed the 30 million earned from 150,000 tickets sold at the Juices of Wild stop over that residency. And just remaining with the Boston band for the moment, they've actually passed now the half billion in concert earnings from 9.3 million ticket sales. They're only the 10th band to have ever done this, and they join the likes of the Eagles, uh, the Stones, obviously, Metallica, Bon Jovi, U2, Depeche Mode, Coldplay, and Dave Matthews. Now, it's been a good month overall for Metallica, aside, of course, from James Hetfield's off-field issues, which he's now addressing. The band, though, have had such an incredible reaction to the initial screenings of the 20th anniversary concert of the S&M gig, remember, from 1999, that there are more screenings to come over the next week. So if you missed it then, there is still a chance to get along and enjoy some of this.
Gaznem 2 live returns to cinemas in the next week. You will have to check your local listings to see who and where it is being shown. Now, staying with documentaries, it seems that these days everybody is at it somewhere. Uh, some make them to shock, some mix it up with a live show, and some like Mountaintop, which is by Neil Young, chart a band getting back together for the first time in seven years to record a new album. I want it up as loud as it can go without feeding. I want to hear the fucking thing. thing off if this is all you can do i don't fucking need it no no yeah, uh, this is one time when i want you guys to just go bang and we're doing it do it okay. right on neil's vocal mic check one two louder this is a band you, you can't, can't fucking hear this, this is not a fucking recording Just the vibe. Oh, hey, check. Well, you're you Sounds great though. What a great fucking sound. Thank you. Mountaintop, as it is called, is another which is getting a cinematic release around the world for a night in Europe on and around November the 28th. The album Colorado is out now. And as for the reviews, not that he gives uh, monkeys about the reviews, by the way, uh, it was summed up quite nicely, I thought, by one critic who said, none of this qualifies really as a rebirth, but it's nice to have him back in a place where it all sounds so natural. <laughs> Right then, what is making the music press this month? Let's start with something new. Outlaw Magazine, not your average run-of-the-mill monthly this, by the way. Firstly, it's mail order from alwaysoutlaw.com. Uh, while you're there, there's a video section worth a look. Some exclusively filmed interviews in there with the likes of Joe Elliott, Ricky Warwick, Slash as well. Onto the magazine itself. This will probably be one of those that you buy and keep because for a start, it's a very high quality print, hard front cover. And it's got that brochure-like smell with it as well. So it'll keep nicely of years to come now slash's front cover of issue number one and not only is it a great front cover shot photography and the features inside also just a cut above the norm as well as for the features themselves Def Leppard with Joe Elliott and the band talking about their career and their rise from the brink of late 90s obscurity to the position which they occupy these days, which is basically a stadium super band. Mick Jones, a foreigner, is incredibly 74 years of age this year. Doesn't look it, by the way. Uh, looks in very good health. And he talks about the early years in the 60s with the likes of Johnny Halliday. And while he was in Paris, hanging out and partying with the Beatles. Of course, his career with Foreign is also covered in detail as well. Elsewhere, the likes of Beth Hart, the Cadillac 3 also in there, as well as a few interesting lifestyle features as well. So it's available now from Always Outlaw. 
Com. Uh, shuffling on to Classic Rock magazine this month, they deliver a Queen special. The music, the majesty, the madness, how they ruled the 70s. Inside, there's a welcome back as well to one of the names of the early 80s. You might remember them, Angel Witch. Remember them? Of course, as soon as you see somebody like that, you just head on over to Spotify, don't you, to see how many of their tracks are up there. And if you look... Uh, Angel Witch, the track, had 2.3 million plays, so still a lot of fans out there. Ex-Hanoi Rock, Michael Monroe, is back to promote his new album, One Man Gang. He's on tour in the UK in November. So to Queen, we get the story of their rise from obscurity, the turning down of a 25k deal from Charisma Records to signing for EMI, their first album when it was released, was reviewed in NME, and it had the line, it was basically a bucket of stale urine. Bit harsh. Touring a support to Mott the Hoople, blowing them off the stage, and uh, being still so broke that they didn't have a TV to watch their Top of the Pops performance, their debut Top of the Pops performance in the 70s. So instead, they all stood outside of a TV shop, and watched through the windows. Things didn't get better, actually, with Queen 2, which, when it was released, was reviewed by the Record Mirror as being the dregs of glam rock. As you would expect, lots of great tales and anecdotes from surviving on cod in a bag to competing with Leonard Skinner to a crowd of GIs. Uh, Not easy for four Brits, as they say, caked in makeup, dressed like women. And uh, hard to believe, though understandable, that radio never played or picked up on Bohemian Rhapsody, all apart from that maverick DJ Kenny Everett, who famously played it 14 times over the course of the weekend. And EMI then released it as a single, and of course we know where it ended up. Amusing still that the reviews, even after this, were patchy, to say the least. Rolling Stone offered praise, it said, or Queen's willingness to experiment even when they fail. Uh, but from then on, of course, it was into the stratosphere, where, as far as we know, they still remain. Oh, and uh, of course, there is reference made to the famous dwarf story. So was it true? Well, you have to read it to find out. Uh, there's an interview with Bruce Springsteen at the Toronto Film Festival. There's a Doors feature on the fourth album, Soft Machine, which is released as a 50th anniversary deluxe edition. Robbie Krieger provides much of the commentary. Meanwhile, in Guitar World, uh, they have a bit of an Iron Maiden fest going on as they proudly give us the 50 greatest Iron Maiden songs. Surprisingly, or maybe not, considering the critical acclaim of late, there is actually just one track selected from the last 19 years of releases, and those are Book of Souls, Final Frontier, Matter of Life and Death, and Dance of Death, and that was If Eternity Should Fail. Brave New World had a couple of selections, but... The top 10 greatest Iron Maiden songs of all time, according to Guitar World magazine, and they know a thing or two over there, by the way. Here they are. Number 10, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son from Seventh Son. Nine, Iron Maiden from Iron Maiden. At eight, The Flight of Icarus from Peace of Mind. At seven, from Killers, It's Murders in the Rue Morgue. At six, this is what not to do if a bird shits on you. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner from Power Slave. At five, two minutes to midnight. At four, Wrathchild from Killers. At three, The Trooper from Peace of Mind. At number two, it was Hallowed Be Thy Name from Number of the Beast. And at number one, it was this. I left alone My mind was blank I needed time to think To get the memories from my mind What did I see? Can I believe That what I 
Iron Maiden and number of the beast. And of course, that led to many people believing that Iron Maiden were Satanists in disguise. There were all sorts of rumours going around at the time of supernatural occurrences during the recording of the album. Lights going out, strange noises and even visions of Satan himself uh, popping in to see how things were coming along. All garbage, of course, but uh, HMV, remember, did a survey a couple of years ago on the anniversary of the Queen's 60th year on the throne. They did it to find out what the UK public's favourite British album of all time was. This was number one, Number of the Beast. Now, staying dreadfully British, record collector has the kinks on the front cover with the promise of a Ray and Dave Davis exclusive motorhead 
are also inside and they too have angel witch as well on that first new album in seven years and they're playing live next year as well angel of light is out on november the first a few other interesting releases outed here as well jimmy page's book is released this month price 350 pounds you can't help wondering whether that is value for money 350 quid and more pictures of led zeppelin as well and um well i think if you're going to be spending over 100 pound on a book what about something like this now this sounds really good it is the official history of the monsters of rock festival from 1980 to 1996 it's just short of 600 odd pages with each festival broken down into details set lists etc they promise exclusive rev photos but again it still isn't cheap at 150 pounds it is it seems to me a ridiculous sum of money for a book uh, but if it delivers what it promises then i suppose you will look at it time and time and time again there are other versions of this including one at 350 pounds that is the one that has signatures of some of the acts that actually played on those bills on then to the main subject which is the kinks now this is all about the re-release in deluxe form of course of 1969's arthur or the decline and fall of the british empire now we meander through all of that and then we get to the crux will they record and play again now it's said that ray does admit that he went through a phase of recording demos on garage band no less and passing them on to Dave. He goes on to say that uh, I go to his house and I play an idea or two. We have a bit of a laugh doing it. But it is the working together that is the important thing because there is still a spark and there is still a dynamic. And, of course, more importantly, the animosity very much in the past. So will they play again? Will they record again? Who knows? Geddy Lee is front cover of Bass Guitar magazine. He said, my story's not done yet. So what does this mean? Does this mean more rush? Tell us more. He says, I do miss playing, and I miss those three-hour marathons that were a rush show. It's hard for me, he says, you know, but I don't miss the tour bus. So you thinking what I'm thinking? He does miss playing. He misses the three-hour marathons, but he doesn't miss the tour bus. So what does that point to? A Las Vegas residency. I don't know whether anybody's actually suggested it, but maybe they should. Uh, Planet Rock have actually just had a new issue release. They too have a Queen-inspired edition as well as this. It's a really good piece with Mick Box of Uriah Heep. And he begins recanting the now legendary review of their debut album by Melissa Mills, who proclaimed in Rolling Stone that if this band makes it, I will have to commit suicide. It remains one of the most controversial reviews ever penned by a critic. Uh, nobody knows exactly what happened to Mills. She did uh, 10 pieces, so it's said, in Rolling Stone, the last of which was in mid-72, ironically, a few weeks after Uriah Heep indeed did get very big indeed after the release of Demons and Wizards. And finally this month, a prog go with Hawkwind front covers. They tell the story, the myths, the madness, the memories in 50 years of the space rock legends. They have, by the way, been confirmed for Rambling Man next year. That wraps up then this month's press review. Now we're going to play you out this month with The Doors. There's a 50th anniversary edition of Soft Parade, the band's much maligned fourth album out now, which if you look back at the reviews of the time was widely dismissed as being a sellout. Now the band themselves did admit at the time that they were looking to broaden their horizons to get some commercial success, which did come, notably with this track. It was called Touch Me. The original lyric, incidentally, was Hit Me. It was Jim Morrison who made the changes. Now, it went on to sell over a million singles in the US, where it went to number one on the Billboard charts, as indeed it did in Canada. It didn't chart in the UK. Uh, maybe not so much of a surprise there, really, there. So here it is then, Touch Me by the Doors. As for us, well, we'll be back in three to four weeks' time. Hope you've enjoyed the show today. Until next time, from me, Tim Cable, bye-bye.
Stars fall from the sky. Oh, you have. 